and we're going to see in Micah 3, um, God's care about social issues. And we've touched on it in Micah 1 and Micah 2, but God cares about what happens in society. He cares about um, justice. He cares about, uh, I mean, go, if you read the Bible cover to cover and just highlight every time that God says he's concerned about widows. I mean, it is, it is all through the Bible. And, uh, and, and the, the oppressed and the vulnerable and those that are taken advantage of and those that are under persecution of their government and, and people who are downtrodden and hurting and hungry, God cares about them. And he expects us to care about them. So uh, we're going to do what we have done. We're going to work our way through Micah chapter 3 and we're going to try to get a better understanding of it. And I've said this before, but I know it's been a month. But um, Micah is an excellent writer. And I'm not, I'm not even a good Hebrew scholar. But even in the English, you can catch, like, there's a lot of um, literary devices, a lot of kind of poetic verbiage going on. And sometimes that can make it hard to grasp, especially since we're not reading it in Hebrew. So we're going to try to talk about that. I, I fully believe that anyone can understand God's word I don't believe that sometimes it doesn't take a little work. So we're going to put a little work in to understand Micah chapter 3. We're going to see what it means. And then uh, we're going to see how it applies to us today. Because we're not Israel. Um, and maybe there are a couple of people with some Jewish heritage. But Israel as a nation, we're not there. <laughs> okay, We're not in a theocracy. So there is a little bit of discernment with how we apply this to our lives. But I think you'll see... Something about who God is, something about what God values, and uh, we're also going to see something about the importance of right teaching and right leading as well. So let's just read Micah chapter 3. It's only 12 verses, and then we'll work our way through it and, and maybe understand some of the harder to understand aspects, and then apply it. Micah 3, 1 says, And I said, Here I pray you, O heads of Jacob, and ye princes of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know judgment? Who hate the good and love the evil, who pluck off their skin from off them and their flesh from off their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them, and they break their bones and chop them up in pieces as for the pot and his flesh within the cauldron. Then shall they cry unto the Lord, but he will not hear them. He will even hide his face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets that make my people err, that bite with their teeth and cry peace. And he that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Therefore night shall be unto you, that ye shall not have a vision, and it shall be dark unto you, that ye shall not divine. And the sun shall go down over the prophets, and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed, and the diviners confounded, yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgression, <clears throat> excuse me, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob, and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all equity. They build up Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire. And the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. 
Therefore shall Zion for your sake be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps, and the mountain, that's the temple mount, of the house as the high places of the forest. Let's pause for a moment, ask God to open his word to us. Father, would you show us what you would have for us uh, tonight? Would the things that I teach be clear? Would the application uh, be meaningful? Would we yield our hearts to what you're saying to us in your word? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's start at the beginning. We'll see uh, Micah takes issue. He takes issue especially with the leadership of Israel and Judah. And uh, this is what Micah writes, verse 1. And I said, here I pray you, O heads of Jacob. So who's he talking to? He's talking to the leadership uh, in, in Judah. And um, the, this general term, heads, is intentional because you'll see that there's several different positions of leadership that Micah's going to criticize in this one chapter. He's going to take shots at several different offices that are not behaving appropriately, that are abusing the people. And ye princes of the house of Israel. So we have Judah and Israel being addressed here. Is it not for you to know judgment? This is, a, this is actually a pretty sharp question. Because you have these people, uh, these would have been almost exclusively men in these positions. Uh, actually, probably exclusively men. And he, he's directing this question. Okay, you are the leaders, and your job is to lead and to judge. Is it to you to know judgment? What Micah is asking is, if anybody should know justice, if anybody should know right from wrong, if anybody should have a little bit of wisdom and discernment, shouldn't it be you, the people who are in charge? And then he, uh, he answers his own question in verse 2. At the very beginning of verse 2, he tells us whether they do. He's like, the minimum requirement for you to be a leader should be you should know right from wrong and you should lead with justice. You should lead with fairness. Verse, verse 2, this is what characterizes these people that Micah is addressing. Who hate the good and love the evil. Several times in Scripture, God talks about people who confuse good and evil. They think of evil as being good. They think of good as being evil. And this is a corruption that can grow over time. We know, especially what's clarified for us in the book of Romans, is that when people are born with a natural sense of right and wrong, okay, uh, the way Paul says it is that God's Word is written on our hearts. God's law, God's law, is written on our hearts, meaning... You're born with a conscience, and people generally agree on certain things that are right and wrong. You ask people if murdering someone is right or wrong. If they say right, you probably have them committed, okay, because they're not well. Um, you know, and, and you ask them, you know, in general, if you ask people, is, is stealing wrong? You know, is assault wrong? And I think generally people would say that those things are wrong, but have you seen it all in society? People who do tend to call good evil and evil good? Because yeah, if you were to ask them in general, like, is, is murder wrong? They would say, of course murder's wrong. Okay. Is abortion wrong? Well, abortion is healthcare and it's a really personal thing and 
and nobody should be forced to talk about it, and everybody has to make that decision for themselves. Okay, well, maybe we're calling good evil and evil good. You know, we, we have a society that, and this is not new, um, the world apart from God has been doing this since the fall of man, calling good evil and evil good. I'm not saying our society is uh, unique in that way, but it doesn't excuse it. And when we have a society whose mantras are abortion is healthcare and love is love and gender is fluid and all these things, and, and we've normalized in some cases, in the cases that we want to, calling good evil and evil good. This is what the rulers of Israel and Judah are doing that Micah is calling out. They are perverting their judgment. They've begun to call good evil and evil good. They're making up the rules as it suits them. And in a social structure like they had where a lot of judgment was done unilaterally by the one person who was in charge of you and certain government officials single-handedly had the power of life and death, it's very, very important that your leaders know what is good and what is evil. And apparently the leaders here did not. It's easy to, you know, point the finger at, at other people who've confused good and evil, but in what ways have we started to call our own evil good? And what good things that God has called us to do, I mean, I'm talking about you, the Sunday night crowd, at the Baptist Church of Hadley in, in small town Michigan, a very conservative crowd. I'm asking you, in what way in your life have you excused your evil? You've started to call your evil good. And in what way have you excused the good things you're supposed to do and started to say, well, maybe I'm not supposed to. You're calling that good evil. Uh, we can't say oh, look at those people, they're so bad, they're, they're calling good evil and evil good. This is not about me at all. I certainly think that's a proud attitude. I think we need to be searching our own hearts to say, do I have the same view as God about my thoughts and words and actions? Do I see it the way that I want to see it? Or do I see it the way that God presents it in His Word? Have I gotten soft on my sin? Have I gotten soft on my submission to what God would have me to do? The omission of good or the commission of evil? So here, here's the problem with these leaders. They, they have called good evil. They've called evil good. They hate good. They love evil. And then we're going to get more specific. Micah's going to get more specific uh, pretty much the rest of the chapter about what they're doing. Uh, and you get a very graphic image here from Micah. And you probably caught it the first time we read it. It's hard to miss. The second half of verse 2 says, who pluck off their skin from off them. This is the leaders and their followers. This is what the leaders are doing to the people that follow them. And their flesh from off their bones. Who also eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off them. And they break their bones and chop them in pieces as for the pot and his flesh within the cauldron. Were the leaders literally doing this to the people? Um, it doesn't seem like that's what Micah is saying. Although we do know that, and we, see, we already saw once in Micah, and we'll see it again, that the leaders were willing to use violence to oppress the people in Israel and in Judah. Um, but this is more of a play off of an image that you, if you can remember a month ago, at the very end of chapter 2, um, 
God likens the leaders of Israel to shepherds. Talks about them being shepherds. So he's saying, I appointed you to be shepherds to care for the people, to lead them in my way, to provide for them, to make sure that everybody's taken care of and everything is fair. And what are you doing instead? You're not acting like shepherds. You're acting like poachers. You're taking advantage of the sheep. You don't just kill them, you eat them. You grind them up and take every part of them. It's a, it's a very sharp condemnation against the leadership, and it's a very vivid picture of what these leaders are essentially doing when they take advantage of the people that God has put them over. So what specifically, if you look at the whole book of Micah, you can get all the specifics of what constitutes poaching God's people. Um, I feel like John Martin, who's a commentator, did a good job of kind of compiling from the whole book all of the things that the leaders are doing that Micah is kind of combining into this image. Um, they are uh, performing unfair legal trials. They are accepting bribes. They are stealing from the people directly. Uh, they are oppressing for their own advantage. They're shedding the blood of innocent people. And they are ignoring the helpless. It's just a short list of things that these leaders are willing to do to advance themselves. God is condemning them. You were meant to be shepherds. You're acting like poachers. Verse 4, Then shall they, the they here is these corrupt leaders, then shall they cry unto the Lord, but He will not hear them. He will even hide His face from them at that time as they have behaved themselves ill in their doings. Whom is God ignoring and when? Somebody is calling to God and he is not listening. Well, clearly, this is these leaders, these leaders who are misusing the people, they're not leading fairly. And when is God ignoring them? Well, in the very soon coming judgment. Micah is prophesying uh, this oppression that would begin with Assyria and would continue with Babylon and, and people would be carried away captive and, and things would be destroyed kind of gradually um, and eventually... Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed and all that. And people are carried out from the land. And what Micah is saying is, right now you're enjoying all this corruption and nothing bad is happening to you. But there will come a day where your false relationship with God is going to bite you. Why is it going to bite you? Because when you call out to God, He won't hear you. Because you're not even His people. <laughs> your, your relationship with God is fake. Your relationship with God is uh, not genuine, and when your time of judgment comes, God will not hear. And this is a repeated theme. We're going to see it again in just a moment. Now Micah goes back and talks a little bit more about some of the ways that the leadership are taking advantage of the people. Verse 5, Thus saith the Lord concerning the prophets, so we're going to get specific to this office, what are the prophets doing wrong? That make my people err that bite with their teeth and cry peace. Okay, This is a very poetic thing. So, and it's a parallel, so we get to hear it twice. He that putteth not into their mouths, they even prepare war against him. Both of those expressions mean the same thing. It means that these prophets, they say they're delivering a message from God. This is what prophets do. But they're not delivering a message from God. They're delivering, delivering whatever message they want. They deliver nice messages to the people that pay them. And they deliver mean messages to people who refuse to pay them. They are like taking advantage of people's fear of God, which how much more corrupt could you be? 
And you say, well, you know, God would be much more pleased with you if you slipped me a tenor. You know, God would have a much nicer message for you. It's kind of hard to fathom that, especially since we're not in that society, but I will tell you that we have the exact same kind of false prophets today in our society. We have people who will say whatever they need to say to get more money. Um, most of the preachers on TV, if you watch TV preachers, I'm sorry to tell you, there are lots of false prophets on television and they will say whatever they need to say to get you to give them more money. I'll say like, if you want to identify false teachers, red flag number one, how much are they concerned about money? How often do they talk about money? Do they make decisions in their ministry based on which decision will get us the most money? That is a major red flag. It's a major red flag. That's one of the reasons that uh, God made it so clear in the New Testament that a qualification to be a pastor is you can't be greedy of money. If you want to be rich, if your whole goal is to be rich and all you think about is being rich, you can't be a pastor because you run into this exact issue. People making decisions and offering certain teachings. What I'll say whatever I have to do and do whatever I have to do to get the most money that I can. These prophets are saying, sure, we'll give you a nice prophecy. We'll give you a positive prophecy to make you feel good about yourself. All you have to do is pay a little money. How much can you afford? Tell you what, the more money you pay, the better prophecy you get. So it's actually an investment. Have you heard a TV preacher say that? Because I definitely have heard TV preachers say that. Not that I watch a lot of them. People sometimes send me clips of the craziest thing that like Joel Osteen is saying, and it's exactly that. If you send me more money, it's like an investment. That's what these false prophets are saying. So that's a bad sign. They're saying, we'll give you good prophecy, or we'll tell you you'll be happy, healthy, wealthy. All you got to do is give me a little more money. There's nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new at all. And I think one thing we got to realize is that at this time of Israel's apostasy, these prophets didn't necessarily claim to be prophets of God. There were multiple false gods that we, we covered in chapter 2 that Israel had gone away at this time after false gods. So they may have been prophets of other gods too in and amongst Israel um, doing the same thing. I'll tell you that Baal really likes you if you give me more money. Or I'll tell you that Ashtaroth really likes you if you give me more money. Um, verse 6, we get to see the condemnation. What happens to these false prophets? And it's like a perfectly ironic judgment. Therefore, night shall be unto you that ye, have, that ye not have a vision. And it shall be dark unto you that ye shall not divine. And the sun shall go down over the prophets and the day shall be dark over them. Then shall the seers be ashamed and the diviners confounded. Yea, they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer of God. What is the judgment for these people who are just making stuff up? When the time comes that they really need to hear from God, they won't. When the time of their judgment comes, it's going to be revealed that they're fakes. Because first of all, none of them saw this coming. They all said nice things. 
and then suddenly judgment came. And, and uh, secondly, when, when people ask them, ask God why, ask God what's going to happen next, they won't be able to tell you because they don't actually know God. They're false prophets. So what's going to happen? They're going to be ashamed is the word here. It's quite possible that after they're revealed to be false prophets, which people should have caught already, they'll be put to death. That's what should happen. They will be ashamed in that day. The judgment is perfect. When you actually need to hear from God, you false prophets, you won't. Verse 8. Now Micah's going to do something that might seem a little self-serving if you aren't looking carefully. Because Micah is going to compare himself, a prophet, to the false prophets. Okay? Verse 8. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of judgment and of might to declare unto Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Micah is the exception. So we've just been told these false prophets, they don't hear from God and they're not going to hear from God. Micah is saying, I do hear from God and I'm probably one of the only true prophets telling you the truth. And I am here to tell you that you're living in sin. You can give me all the money you want. The message is not going to change because it's true. Giving me more money is not going to make you less sinful. You are living in sin. True preachers, in this case true prophets, tell people the truth about their sin. They don't butter you up. They don't excuse things. They don't lie for personal gain. In fact, they, they shouldn't even be thinking about personal gain. And again, if, if a preacher or a leader is making decisions for a ministry based on entirely financial considerations, that's not God's man. I've known, uh, there's some different opinions on this and there are good men who disagree. I, I know some pastors who uh, have a practice of, um, one pastor that I more or less apprenticed under told me, well, I always keep my eyes on the money and my hands off the money, which hands off the money is a very good practice and we have that practice here. I never handle the church's money. Um, and that's great. But what he was saying when he said eyes on the money is that he would look over giving statements <clears throat> and he would like, find out if people were giving or not. And I, I think there could have been a, a good motive and he was like, I just want to help people be faithful and so on. But I, I'm afraid that the temptation would be, now you know how much people give. I don't, I don't want to treat anybody differently because of how much they give to the church. I think that I, it would be hard for me to fathom too many things that are more corrupt than that in ministry than to have favoritism for certain people because of how much money they offer. Um, so I don't have that policy. I don't see giving statements, and I don't care to. Good leaders care about people over profits. P-R-O-F-I-T-S. Okay. And good leaders care about the truth more than their reputation. These prophets were the opposite of that. They cared a lot about their reputation. They cared a lot about the money in their pocket. They cared a lot about um, advancing themselves regardless of what God wanted from his people. 
Verse 9, Hear this, I pray you, ye heads of the house of Jacob and princes of the house of Israel, that abhor judgment and pervert all iniquity. They build up Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. The heads thereof judge for reward. Okay, so here you go. You get a summary. Here's a summary, and we're going to include more, more offices than just the prophets. Verse 11, The heads thereof judge for reward, and the priests thereof teach for hire, and the prophets thereof divine for money. Yet will they lean upon the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? Non-evil can come upon us. The craziest thing about these corrupt priests and these false prophets and these judges, or these would be like political leaders who, who make decisions, like kings and princes, making decisions about who's in the right and who's in the wrong and settling civil cases. Um, the really crazy thing about all of these very corrupt people is they convinced themselves they weren't corrupt. They convinced themselves God is with us and nobody can oppose us. They had called their good evil and their evil good. They didn't even realize how corrupt they were. I think sin can be that way. It's kind of a gradual um, accumulation. And unless we're looking into the light of God's word, which is what Micah is offering to the people, the light of God's word, unless we're looking into that mirror of God's word, we might get really far from God and really far into our own sin before we realize we were even in the wrong. Sin is subtle. And sin isn't just actions. It's wrong attitudes. It's wrong thoughts. It's wrong words. And uh, that's the craziest thing about this is that he lists all these terrible things that these people are doing and it mainly has to do with financial corruption. And then he says, yet, the crazy thing, they will lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? None evil can come upon us. Micah's saying, well, I hate to burst your bubble, but there is evil coming. And evil in this sense, not meaning sin, but evil meaning bad things that happen to you. And there is a bad thing coming for Israel, and shortly after, shortly, a while after, 200 years later, for Judah, God's judgment is coming. They legitimately thought that they could continue in these sins, or at least they didn't recognize these sins, and they thought that God would continue to bless them and protect them. We just talked this morning, and I mentioned it in the morning service, but my Sunday school lesson this morning was about Psalm 91. Psalm 91, David talks about how God protects him, how God keeps him from evil, and he can trust God to do that because God is almighty and God is greater than any other enemy. And this is a very common theme. David has lots of psalms about this. But the interesting thing is right in the middle of that psalm, there's a qualifier about who it is that God takes care of and who it is that God protects from evil and who it is that God is near. In Psalm 91, David says, those that love you. We, we love to tell people, we know that all things work together for good. There's more to that sentence. If you leave off the end of that sentence, you might be giving somebody a false hope. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those that are the called according to His purpose. So in the New Testament, who is it that all 
things work together for good for. People who are saved and love the Lord. It's not everybody. These leaders, even though they were far from God, they showed their entire lack of faith and submission to God, were convinced that God would still work out all things together for good for them. When really, God's judgment was right around the corner. The, the consequences for these false leaders would be perfect. They would lose their wealth, the thing that they wanted so badly. They would lose their influence, the thing that they used so corruptly. And they would continue to be separated from God. And God would come and eventually destroy Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And at the end of that, really, there would be silence. There would be no prophecy for almost 400 years. They thought, I can live in my sin and God will just let me live in my sin. And nothing, nothing bad will happen. They were sorely mistaken because God is a God of justice. When they couldn't judge fairly, God did. And we get to see a picture of that judgment in the last verse, verse 12. Therefore, Shall Zion, okay, Zion being Jerusalem here, okay, Zion is the city of God. If you didn't know this, you probably know this. Zion is the city of God. So the term can be used either for Jerusalem or for heaven. Okay, it, it's a flexible term in that way. Because in a sense, Jerusalem is the city of God. Certainly heaven is the city of God. Uh, so here, we're referring to Jerusalem. And that's why when we went through Jonah, we had, some, we had a little trouble because I said I wasn't sure because um, Jonah was crying out to Zion. And there's some discussion about whether Jonah means he was crying out to heaven or he was crying out to the temple. It doesn't matter because either way he was crying out to God. That's kind of the point. But here, this is Jerusalem. <clears throat> so therefore shall Zion, for your sake, be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become heaps and the mountain of the house as the high places of the forest. So this is a prophecy that would be fulfilled actually quite a bit after Micah, but during Micah's lifetime, it would start down this road, okay? Israel would fall, eventually Jer Judah would fall, and then Jerusalem would be destroyed, and the temple would be destroyed. And uh, so... This prophecy is true. It's, it's kind of the ultimate consequence, what will eventually happen. And the, the really sad thing about the loss of the temple is not just that it was a beautiful building, though it was. I mean, I would have paid good money to see Solomon's temple. The description that we get. And then you see when they're rebuilding the temple, the old men who are old enough to have seen the first temple are weeping because the new temple is not even close to as cool, as, the, as glorious, okay, as the old temple was. But that's not really the sad thing about the destruction of the temple. The sad thing about the destruction of the temple is that the temple symbolized God's presence with his people. And so what this prophecy really implies is your relationship with God is going to be fractured because of your sin. And again, we are not Israel, and we are, as Christians, we are the temple. The Holy Spirit dwells in us instead of dwelling in a building. 
But I think that the principle of our sin fracturing our relationship with God definitely still stands. Because a consequence of your sin, even if you never saw the regular consequences of sin, okay, you think of the natural consequences of sin, even if you had, you know, let's say you had an affair, but, you know, there wasn't an unwanted pregnancy, you didn't lose your marriage, you know, everything kind of worked out for you and you didn't face any temporal consequences, at the very least, your relationship with God was fractured by that sin. Now, a wonderful thing is that Jesus can make that relationship whole again, and he can do it time and time and time again, but you experience at least a period where God is further away. Your, your iniquity hides God's face from you. And here, that seems to be displayed as like the biggest consequence of all. Sometimes, I think maybe we, when we think about the consequences of our sin, we think about what it does to our relationship with God as kind of like a secondary thing or a minimal thing because that can be easily fixed. Here, that's presented as like the biggest problem. Here's the cherry on top. Here's the biggest consequence for your sin. God's going to be further away. It's going to hurt your relationship with God. There's going to be no temple. There's going to be no way to draw close into the Holy of Holies and be with God. And even though at this period, that only lasted 50-some years, really, before the beginning of the construction of the second temple, that's 50 years not being able to enter into the holy place. And as long as we continue in our sin that Jesus freed us from, we're, our relationship with God can be fractured. We don't know Him as well as we could. We don't commune with Him as well as we could. And even though there's always a chance of restoration, that time that we lost while we were wandering in our sin, that time when we could have been close to God, but we weren't. Maybe that's the biggest consequence of all. So as we look back over this uh, chapter, it's pretty cut and dry. Um, I think it's probably much easier to understand than, than chapter 2. But there's applications for a few classes of people. And we've touched on all these things, but just in review. There's an application here for leaders. What, what seems to be the most important, important characteristic of a spiritual leader? That they be godly. That they be godly. And you might think, okay, well, pastors are definitely spiritual leaders. Deacons are spiritual leaders. You know, traveling preachers are spiritual leaders. I'm willing to bet that almost everybody in this room has a position of spiritual leadership. Husbands, you're called to be the spiritual leader to your wife. And I think, sadly, and I think God knows this, oftentimes our wives excel past us spiritually and we're just trying to catch up. That shouldn't be. Uh, both husbands and wives who have children, whether young or grown, you're a spiritual leader. And your godliness has effects on more than just you. you whether you are close to God and whether you know Him and whether you speak the truth that He has given and, and whether you judge fairly, all of those things affect everybody around you. So I think for leaders, the application is that we need to be godly. We need to lead with honor, to lead with justice, to lead with integrity. 
Listen, we've got enough disgraced leaders, and I almost like don't want to. I'm on a, um, I'm on a few like ministry Facebook pages, and uh, I feel like every few days there's an article shared about some big name minister who disgraced himself, maybe even going to jail, whether that's a sexual scandal or a financial scandal or fill in the blank with whatever. We don't need any more disgraced leaders. We need godly leaders. I think there's also an application here for teachers, which I'm going to delineate a little bit from leaders. Many times, teachers and leaders are one of the same. But teachers, those who share God's word with others. Certainly, I think there's an application here for us that we need to be teaching what is true. And not what we wish was true. And not what people want to hear. But just telling the truth as God tells it. And I think again, if you have a position of influence, you are in some sense a teacher. Even if you would never get up behind a podium like this and teach, as you share wisdom or even opinions with the people around you, you are teaching them. You're a representative of God as a Christian. That's the wonderful thing about the priesthood of the believers is given to all of us to take the message. So I think as we teach, we need to make sure that we're teaching God's truth, not God's truth as we would have it. And finally, the last application is for all Christians. And that is our communion with God should be genuine. What, what it ultimately was revealed about, especially the prophets, is that when the time came for them to actually prophesy, they wouldn't be able to because their relationship with God was fake. Which really drives home when you think about your own relationship with God. How much do we put on? How much do we put on? How much do we put on when we come to church and you're around people who are here? Are you, is it a mask? Is it hypocrisy? Because you act a certain way when you're here, but it's not real. Or do you have a genuine relationship with God? And are you real about it? Are you real about it? One way or another, the genuineness of your walk will eventually be revealed. Maybe you can fool people for a while if you're kind of playing Christian or playing successful Christian. But eventually, it will be known whether or not your relationship with God is genuine. And I mean that for believers and unbelievers. Certainly, in the judgment, whether or not you put your faith in Christ will be known. I mean, that will be obvious. There's really one of two paths to go down. I think also for believers, I think you can know Christ and, and be saved and still not walk with God and fake it. But what I think we're called in, in Micah 3 to be genuine, to be genuine. These men that are being um, judged here, they're being prophesied against, it wasn't real. It was, it was a facade. It was to advance themselves, to make them look good amongst their peers. It was to get you know, some kind of financial advantage or whatever. We got to make sure that we're, that we're real. That we're real. That we're genuine about our walk with God. 
So there you go. There are some thoughts from Micah chapter 3. Next week, when we come back, we get to Micah chapter 4, which is about Jesus, believe it or not. So there's been a lot of doom and gloom in, in Micah 1 through 3. And Micah 4 will be, I think, a breath of fresh air because we get to hear about God's kingdom that Christ establishes. Let's close in prayer. We'll sing a closing song and be dismissed. Father, thank You for Your Word. Lord, for those of us who lead, would we lead with integrity? For those of us who teach, which is many of us, would we teach truth? And for those of us who claim to walk with You, would it be real? Would we have a genuine relationship with the God who saved us and loves us and cares for us? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.